0: Roger. Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today and uh, ready to engage with me and with us together as we talk about in this second week in our series on uh, encouragement for today's family. Uh, In just a little while, I'm going to make sure that everybody in the room knows that this message is for you, okay? If you're sitting there thinking it's not going to fit you, I can tell you it will uh, as we get to it in just a little bit. So go ahead, if you would, grab your message notes out of your program. Uh, They look like this, and they're going to help you be able to take some notes and follow along with the Bible verses we'll have today. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I'll be jumping in at verse 18 uh, and just looking at four verses today as we talk about uh, building a home where grace is in place. And I just am so excited about the idea. Uh, The title comes from a book. It's in our bookstore, one of the recommended books for pastor's picks for this series, Families were graces in place, uh, but, you know i 've had this book for about i 'm going to guess twelve years, and it 's been very helpful for me and uh, They came out with a you know, new cover repackaging and it looks really cool so um, uh, if looks alone can sell, this will be it but it 's got a lot of great stuff inside. If you want to look at that, you could. Uh, as we go along. So what I want to do is I want to uh, just kind of uh, get an idea, you know all of us to get an idea of our head about what we're talking about today, about this idea of grace. So I'm going to ask you if you to watch this video that gives us a clue about grace. Let's watch. I used to feel like I owed God something, that I could do something to pay what I owed him but this is a picture of a paid bill by Jesus and that's what grace means to me in my life that there's nothing that I can do to pay that bill but that Jesus already paid it by his death on the cross for me grace is um, it's like rain it it washes away everything that was there before it makes me feel like there's a chance that I have a new beginning Grace for me is like this picture my life was broken and I didn't know where to go I was trying to do things on my own trying to fix things and then when I accepted that gift of grace. Um, It was like the pieces of my life and my heart got put together and I discovered who I was and I discovered that I am loved. To me it's a happy family and that's my picture of grace because God took my family when it was completely broken and I thought it couldn't be fixed and he restored my marriage and my family and with him as the foundation of it all so now it's strong. Grace has made me a people person. I have spent years as a essentially a loner. Uh, Even in a crowd, I was essentially by myself. But grace has given me an an opportunity to be a part of a community. The whole grace thing is amazing because you don't have to earn it because it's just love. God has given me a new heart from this darkness to this bright red that's pumping and beating and it's alive and it's amazing, amazing grace. So today what I want to do is I want to walk through some different pictures of grace to help us to understand uh, this whole idea of grace in our homes. And uh, grace is just one of those words that uh, it's kind of hard for us to conceptualize. We use it a lot. And yet, I'm sure that if we were to ask what we actually mean when we say grace, we're not actually, you know, certain what we're meaning when we use it. Uh, So I just want to get, you know, help us to understand what I'm talking about today. First of all, there's the grace we receive from God. Uh, And God gives us a gift we couldn't earn, and that is freedom uh, from the penalty of our sin and uh, to enter into a relationship with Him because of what He did uh, when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Uh, There's that grace we receive from God. Then there's the grace we receive or we give to others. Uh, And what that grace is, that's a grace that helps us, in some way gives us the energy to become more than we are. To make the steps we need to do to, to walk through to be transformed, or to do something we didn't think we could do, so it's the grace we receive or give to others to uh, as a gift to help them become more than they are. Now, both of those are key to understanding what we're talking about today. First, you can't give grace if you haven't received grace. If you haven't received God's grace, the gift of grace that He offered. When he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, if you said yes to him at a certain point, if you've not received that grace, then you can't give grace to other people. So the grace that we're talking about today is only possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing you got to know, that you just really uh, are, you know, know, functioning with not all cylinders uh, in your car working uh, if you haven't received Christ yourself, and second, we need to understand is we must be committed. Then, if we know Christ and we've received His grace, we must be committed to giving grace. To the people in our world. We must make it a commitment. It must be something that we've chosen. It's not natural to do that. So we want to be able to, to say, I'm going to give myself in a positive way, and especially in the home. If we're going to have the kind of home that we'd like to build, then we need to be dispensers of grace. Grace is like fertilizer to a lawn. I had the privilege of officiating a wedding a couple of weeks ago, and uh, when I got to the wedding site for the rehearsal, you know, it was way out in Browns Valley, a long ways away, and by, you know, this time of year, everything's dying the further you get down into the valley, and so it was starting to look pretty brown, and Uh, And it was a hot day. It was that really hot weekend that we had. And I was driving and I got to the wedding spot and pulled into a gravel parking lot, walked across gravel and came around the corner where I got a view and opened up in front of me the most most beautiful lawn I've ever seen. Just green, beyond belief green. And then the pathway going down to where there was a little pond there. It was a showcase lawn. It was one of those kinds of places. And so I asked, uh, after the rehearsal, I asked the, the lady of the house, the owner of the establishment, I asked her, how did you do this? And here was her answer. She said, lots and lots of chemicals, okay? (laughs) Lots and lots of chemicals, lots of fertilizer. And what I want us to understand today, if we're going to have the kind of home we want to have, if we want to have the kind of home that just kind of stands out uh, and is appealing and beautiful, then it's going to require lots and lots of, of grace, lots and lots of fertilizer, if that home is going to grow into the home that we want it to be. And so, if in order to do that, we need to understand that we all need this. Grace is the substance that produces growth and joy. It's the substance that produces growth and stimulates joy in our home. And so, next week, we're going to look at the concept of grace even more deeply. And so, you know, just these next two weeks, we'll talk about grace in our homes together. But, Already, I think some of you may be sitting there going, "Okay, this is you know not the week for me. I, I'm not you know I'm just like maybe a teenager or I'm in college and so you know I'm just living in a home. I'm not married. If I'm you know some of you're saying I'm not married, so this must not be for me today or the series isn't for me, uh, some kind of way. So I just want to kind of level the playing field and help us to know how we're all included in this message. I'm gonna ask some questions. As you raise your hands, if you would raise your hands when it fits you. Here's the first one: How many of you are married? through your hands. Wow, quite a few of you are married. Okay, you can put them down. How many of you used to be married? Okay, quite a few people used to be married, so that would be you as well. How many of you want to be married? Okay, if you're married, you can't raise your hand, okay, (laughs) unless you're saying to the person I'm next to. Okay, how many of you know someone who's married? Okay, okay, now children. How many of you have children? Raise your hand your hand okay put them down how many of you want to have children you've never you know been able to do that yet you want to do that okay good 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 how many of you know someone with children okay great (coughs) how many of you wish you hadn't had children no 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 just don't do that okay (laughs) let's don't go there not gonna get into that one today uh but here's the next okay how many of you are children okay so okay now you see I've proved this series relates to everyone in this room, okay, because you all raised your hand at a certain point, and I believe you're going to get something from this. Well, today we're in Colossians 3, and these verses are set in a time, just to give you a little backstory, they're set in a time uh, when the early church in Colossae, where this was written to by the Apostle Paul, was struggling with the whole idea of grace, uh, the leaders of the church, uh, that they were all about performance. You know, they came out of a performance religion background, and so it was hard for them to kind of understand grace and not allow performance and rules to keep creeping back in. And so Paul is writing to them, and he's talking to them about the kind of grace that they needed to be dispensers of so that the people around them wouldn't get caught back up in the performance and trying to believe that they could approve, you know, uh, earn God's approval in some way. And so he's just saying, you know hey, guys, that's not Christianity approval, you know, getting God's approval by what you do, that's not Christianity. Christianity is Christ forgives you. God gives you a gift because of what Jesus Christ did for you so that you can receive that grace, and then so that you can be free to give that grace to other people. And in these verses we're going to look at today, in this right in the section of Colossians, he's going to say, and this is what it looks like in the home. This is what it looks like for you to do it in the home. And so when you give grace to your family, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to take two categories. First would be husbands and wives, and then parents and children. And he talks about both groups. And so I'm just going to take them in the order he did. And we're going to walk through, and we're going to talk about how each of those folks in a home can be dispensers of grace in that home. Now, you just got to know, as we first were talking about husbands and wives, all of us who are married need help in this area. Not one, ma- not one marriage in this room is perfect, okay? There's not one marriage. So we all need help in some way. If you're not married, or maybe you're a teenager, or you're in college and something, you're thinking about, you know, what would it be like to be married? I want you to take copious notes today, because I think this is going to help. A- in fact, I got to go last night to uh, 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 our fusion event and this was for twenty and 30s uh, who were 20s, people in their 20s and 30s who were married or want to be or thinking about getting married or close to that. And I was, you know, first of all, impressed at how many folks showed up and the great time that we had together. But here's what I was thinking as I was sitting there and knowing what I was going to talk about today. I was like, oh, I just wish that, that everyone in this room could, could know what I know now, could know what I know now. So that they could start building now into their home the opportunities for grace to be dispensed. And so then I realized, I am going to talk about it today. And hopefully they all came. And so they can know it now. And all of us can know it as well. So let's talk about marriage for a minute. For the wife, that's where Paul begins. Paul begins as, If you want to build grace in your home, respect your husband. Respect your husband. That's the first thing he says. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as if, as is fitting... For those who belong to the Lord, and so you just want to circle that word, submit. That's the key word there. And already, some of your, you know, you, some of you ladies, the hair on the back of your neck is starting to go. <laughs> inside, it's just ooh, we hate that word, submit. Uh, you know, for some reason, it's not. It's not a very popular word for anybody in 21st century America or the world. And so uh, the reason that that word has such a problem is that some of you came from a home that was ruled by an authoritarian male, and that authoritarian male used this verse to keep your mom or your family underneath his thumbs so that he could rule the home. And that's the reason that when you come to this verse and you hear the word submit there, your hackles kind of rise up because you've seen this verse abused. And this is the reason that your mom divorced your dad. It's because your dad was relentless on pushing down that he was the authority and that everybody had to obey him. And for some of you, that's the very reason, if your parents were still married, that is, if you had this kind of authoritarian, over-authoritarian person in your home, this is the reason you left home as early as you could, because you wanted to escape that, that kind of place. Now, that word submit, because it has so much baggage attached to it, uh, and because you know, most of the baggage comes to us, the way we've you know, kind of the awareness of how we've seen this word actually misused to abused women throughout history, I thought we'd talk about it a little bit for just a minute, minute. People today get confused. And when we use the word submit, here's what many people hear when the word submit is used. They hear the word submit, they think, I have to become a doormat or obey without question not to become a doormat or obey without question. Now, what's really interesting about this whole idea of thinking about it from that direction is that two of the people who were lifted up as prime examples in the Bible of, of uh, submission are Moses and Jesus. Two of the people in the Bible, prime examples of submission, Moses and Jesus. Moses was called the most humble man who ever lived. Jesus was called the greatest servant who ever lived. Both of these folks submitted perfectly to their heavenly father. And I just want to ask a question, just for clarity. Were they doormats? I don't think Jesus was a doormat. I don't think Moses. Were they wimps? No, they weren't. They were leaders who changed the world. They changed the world because they understood proper submission. Uh, When when Paul writes in um, Colossians 3 here, he's not talking the whole council of the Bible here about submission. He's talking about it in a specific category. And so you really have to understand what it means in context to, understand, to know what he's talking about. So let me give you some context. Uh, Paul's writing to and uh, would be similar to the context in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, men were not supposed to talk to women, so that was a cultural rule. And it was actually a religious rule. Men were not supposed to talk to women, and yet Jesus did talk to women, right? So he broke that cultural rule. Men weren't even supposed to teach women, and yet Jesus did. We know examples of when he did that. Other examples in the Bible where that kind of the cultural norm was broken is that you see a female apostle mentioned in the book of Romans. Uh, You see female prophets mentioned in the book of Acts. If you go back to the Old Testament, you, write, you find uh, there was a season where there was a female Deborah who ruled over Israel for a season. She was a judge there, so she was the you know, chief prophetess of the nation during that time. And at the end of Romans, Paul greets a whole list of women. And as he's doing that, you realize that he's talking about these are people who are in authority. These are people who um, were under the submission of God, but yet they were still in authority in the church. Okay, so what does Paul mean then? In Colossians three eighteen, when he says that a woman should submit, well, the best way I've you know the best way I've heard this expressed, and I know this still may not help some of you today, but it's actually helped me to think about this. The best way I've heard it you know expressed is this: what he means here is this. Wives follow the lead of your husbands. Wives follow the lead of your husbands. There are two people in a dance saying, "Wives follow the lead." of your husband's. But even that definition can get misused, okay? Even that thinking by men who still want to club their women over the head uh, with this whole idea of submission. So I just want to say this so everybody can kind of understand, we can maybe free somebody up today. To submit does not mean absolute submission to every nutty idea your husband has, okay? (laughs) Okay, so we got that, right? To every nutty idea that the husband may come up with in some way. I can prove that. I can prove because we are told in the Bible to submit to all authorities, those placed over us in authority, and yet yeah, there are examples in the Bible where people who were serving God didn't submit, submit to authorities. One is Acts 5. Acts 5, Peter and John says, Uh, They were, you know, being, they were arrested for talking about Jesus, and they were told if, you know, hey, we'll let you go if you don't talk about Jesus anymore, and the response was this. If we must choose between obeying God or man, we will obey God. And so what they're saying here, what they're showing us is that submission to God always trumps every other kind of submission. Submission to God first always trumps every other kind of submission. So let me say, okay, now, what is Paul really saying then? And I wish I could bring Paul up here, and he would just kind of talk to us, and you could ask your questions, and we kind of talk that through, but I can't. But Paul wrote in other places in the Bible about submission, and another example I put there for you is in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5, he says this, The wife must respect her husband. Would you circle that? Respect her husband. And so what Paul is saying here is that submission means grace-filled respect for your husband. That you're going to respect his, you know, respect his way, respect his plan, respect his person, and you're going to uh, talk about him in a positive way when you're with other people, especially other women. That you're going to talk about him in a positive way, and especially when you're in front of other people and he's with you. That you're going to, you know, treat him with absolute respect. The point is that in a marriage that's Christ-centered, that that there's no domineering, and we're going to talk about this kind of, in, there's no domineering. The husband doesn't domineer over the wife, and the wife doesn't domineer over the husband, and so we have this idea of respect. But then Paul gets to husbands, and this is what he says to husbands. He says this, I build grace into my home when I love my wife. So the idea for husbands is, I must love my wife. And that's what he says in verse 19. He says, husband, loves, love your wives, and never treat them harshly. So he kind of gives a qualifier here. Not only, you know, love, but never treat them harshly. Uh, And so, guys, this kind of heads up there. If you read that and just think about in the past week, has there ever been a moment where you spoke harshly to your wife um, or treated him harshly in some way? So if you did that, then you're not loving them as Paul calls you to love. Now, once again, I want to kind of put it into cultural context. So you remember about women, then cultural context was that they had really no rights. And then we look at uh, this whole idea of husbands. uh, Once again, um, as we look at this, they had the right. So here we go. The husband in this culture, and this is just the culture, okay? This is true. This is what was going on. The husband had the right to kill his wife or his daughter for adultery. It was his right. It was given right by the culture and society. Even though the husband himself engaged in adultery, even though he did it himself. One writer from the Roman culture said this kind of gives you an idea of what it was like. We have wives for the purpose of bearing legitimate heirs and managing our homes. We have prostitutes for pleasure and concubines for daily sex. So, this is the culture that Paul is writing to, and he's talking to these husbands. And this was what the, 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 your, your, a culture given right was to be able to treat women in this way. But he says, This is how I want you to treat them. I want you to love them. And I'm going to add this I don't want you to treat them harshly. So we got to know when Paul's writing here, he's talking about something that was totally new and totally radical to the world he was living in. So, how do we understand that? Let's go over to Ephesians again. Let's see, because in Ephesians, Paul gives more clarity than he talks about how a husband should love his wife. He says this. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. So that's how a husband is to love his wife. He gave up his life for her. And so how did Jesus love the church? How did Jesus love us? Well, we know that Jesus sacrificed. We know that Jesus served. Uh, We know that Jesus gave. We know that Jesus was humble. We know that Jesus lowered himself so that others could be lifted up. So those are some of the ways we know that Jesus loved and that husbands are called to love as well. And I was thinking about that, and I came across this uh, writing by a guy named Walter Trobisch, and uh, and I just think it says so well what Paul was talking about in these verses. Here's, he goes, he, this is what he says. He says, when a man says to his wife, I love you, and he means it as Christ loved the church, it means, here we go, here's what it means, You, you, you I choose. You shall dwell in my heart and I in yours. You are the one I have longed for. I will give everything for you. I will give everything up for you. I will give everything to you. I will give myself as well as all I possess. I will work for you and wait for you. I want to guard you and protect you. I want to share my thoughts, my heart, my body, all that I possess. I want to listen to what you have to say. I want to bless and support your undertakings. I want to remain always at your side. I will die for you, Walter Trobisch. That's the love that I believe Paul's referring to when he says that a husband should love his wife as Jesus loved the church. He gave himself up for her. Now, some of you guys and your husbands, when you think about this whole idea of giving up your life for your wife, I mean, you've got it in your head that what Paul means here is there, there might be an incident where, say, North Korea does invade the, the United States, that if North Korea invaded the United States, you would get a gun out, and you would go to battle, and you would stand in front of your home, and if North Koreans came against your home, you would shoot it out with the North Koreans, and if you died, that would be you giving up your life for your wife. Now, guys how likely is that to happen? (laughs) Not very likely. So Paul is probably referring to that moment when you could be the superhero uh, and stand up for your family, but what I think he really is talking about is the day-by-day routines of life, where husbands, you get to die to yourself, and you get to live for your wife, and you get to show her your love by your willingness to put yourself aside. It's the just say it, it's the daily gestures of love that fill the love tanks. The daily gestures of love. I, I love going to the ocean, and uh, for me, one of my favorite places is Aptos. And uh, Kim and I spent a lot of time over at Aptos, and you know, if you ever been there, that you've got the ocean, the beach, and then you've got these cliffs that go up right out of, and they've got these homes all along the cliffs there. Now, everybody in California, they talk about in that area, they talk about, well, golly, you know, if they have the big one, you know, we have the big earthquake, that all those homes are going to be demolished, and they're going to go into the ocean, and uh, they're going to be ruined. But do you know what? Honestly, the greatest threat to those homes are, is greatest threat to those homes? It's not the big one. It's erosion. It's erosion. That slowly over time, the banks erode and the home ends up slipping into the ocean. And if we're not pouring in on a regular basis into the love tanks of our wife, I guarantee you that our homes are eroding. And they we can't stop the erosion. But what we can do is we can keep piling in the love so that they feel our love. Now, and it's true. I'm, I'm just, this is true of every marriage. Every marriage. In every marriage, there's erosion. In my marriage, in your marriage, uh, Kim and I got to have a, an official date night on Friday. And, you know, I, I didn't plan it this way, so I'd look good today because I had a date night on Friday. <laughs> it just happened that that was the way that our schedules worked out, and we actually got to have a date, and we were both commenting when we got to have this date that it's been a long time since we had an official date that didn 't include errands or shopping or some you know thing that we had to do as well, we kind of you know added some time together in there, but this was just an official we 're going to take time out for just you and me and uh, so we had a date on Friday now. The really good thing about this date is that there wasn 't like a biggie that either one of us had been holding back, waiting for that moment that we could you know talk about So there wasn't one of those, so just heads up that that was actually a good thing uh, but what happened is is that we realized as we were having our date how much we had been missing our heart connections uh, the connections we have you know with each other and so um, I just thinking you know if Kim and I we struggle with this I'm sure that you struggle with this and so what I want to do today is I'm just going to give you some ways that you can develop some heart connections with your spouse now here's the key, even though I'm talking about marriage right now, what I'm getting ready to give you you can use. At home with your kids, you can use at work, you can use with your friends. So even though it just we're applying it just to marriage, you can use these same steps to create connections anywhere you go. So I'm going to give you four questions that you can ask to create a heart connection. The first one is this: um, What are your expectations? What are your expectations? Great question to ask prior to something you do, prior to something you do. So you ask about expectations. I talk to you know when I get to uh, do my premarital counseling. I actually have the couple the, who are engaged. I have them go to a whole list and just give me as many expectations as they have because what I tell them is that the biggest disappointment in marriage is unmet expectations. They, they, didn't, you, they weren't met after you got married. So let's talk about them before we get married. And uh, then we can go from there to, to look at that. So, expectations. So, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about. Um, because we're getting ready to do in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how to be financially fit, and uh, we've been talking to some couples in our church that we're going to be, uh, be able to uh, show on video that day about you know how they got financially fit. So I was thinking about expectations about you know that would be you know hey, what are expectations about a budget? what are expectations about spending? What are expectations about debt? What are expectations about giving to God? So you ask those, expe- at, you know, what the expectations each of you have, and you kind of work through those. But there are, you know, other things too. What are expectations about the holidays? What's my expectation about vacation? So you're planning summer vacation. What are you going to do? So instead of one of you planning the vacation, you say, to the, what are our expectations? You know, how's this going to play out? What are we going to do? And so then you verbalize those and then at the end of the vacation you don't have somebody <laughs> sulking because oh, why are you sulking? We just got bring I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. <laughs> you know, so you don't get that. Is you actually do it up front and you kind of then accommodate everybody's, you know, thoughts. You, what are your expectations about meals? What are your expectations about being together? And I say you can uh, you can keep yourself from a lot of uh, Uh, disappointment and hurt when you up front define your expectations okay second is this and by the way these are going to get more difficult okay that was kind of the surface level that's a pretty safe one right there but here's the second one here what makes you feel loved what makes you feel loved now because i knew what i was talking about on sunday and we had a moment um at dinner on friday night i just thought i would try you know a couple of these questions with kim and so I asked her this question, and, uh, you know, the first thing, in, and she was just, you know, helping me, not just, she, no, she answered the question eventually, but she was actually helping me with my talk at this point, point. and she, what she said was, she said, Ron, I, I just think you ought to make it clear to the people on Sunday, you can't make me feel anything. And that's the truth, folks. You cannot make a person feel anything. You're not responsible. You can't make them. You can't force it, but you can help them. So here's what she said. What helps you feel loved would be a better way to say that. What helps you feel loved? Because if I can't make you feel a certain way, and I'm going to pound it in you until you feel loved right now, then I'm going to do things to help you. Now, one of the things you can use would be uh, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. If you're not familiar with that, Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages. And he has a book written by that. And I just think t- because today's world is so free, there's lots of free stuff on, online that you'd probably be able to go online to Gary Chapman and The Five Love Languages. And I bet you there's a free test right there where you can find out your love languages. But you know, there's five areas, or ways they say we give and receive love. One is through touch. One is through serving or service. Uh, one is through words. Uh, one is through gifts and one is through time and so you know basically everybody's pretty much wired to one of those five ways they give or receive love it would be touch service words gift or time and so you can you know know each other and then as you know them you can say i know what helps this i know what helps my spouse feel love so i'm going to make sure i do these things that help my spouse feel love and then i'm going to ask occasionally are you feeling loved by the way they actually have one of these for children so the five love languages for children so you can also know what your children how they're what their love languages are so you can help them feel loved as well third one and i think this is the most difficult question of all what is it like to be in a relationship with me Another, you know, what is it like to be in a marriage with me? But what is it like to be in a relationship with me? This, you've got a lot of courage. You're feeling like things are pretty clear and clean. And so, what is it like to be in a relationship with me? Uh, I heard. I went to a workshop a couple of weeks ago, and the way they said to ask uh, this question is this: How are you experiencing me right now? How are you experiencing me right now? Because here's the deal. Very few of us, very few of us, and I'm not, very few of us are self-aware enough to know how we're coming across to someone else. So since very few of us are self-aware enough to know accurately how we're coming across to someone else, what we have to do is that we have to start learning how we're coming across, and the way we learn how we're coming across, is by asking, how are you experiencing me right now? I'm petrified of this question. You know, I just, just, how are you experiencing me right now? And ask that. What is it like to be in a relationship with me? And if you're, you know, develop some intimacy and some honesty, this is going to really connect you. It's going to point out some things where you can be closer and not break intimacy. Number four, what is one thing I can do to improve our relationship? What is one thing I can do to improve our relationship? And once again, it's a little bit difficult, but, you know, basically most people are going to, oh, I know one thing. You know, uh, you could get the socks like three steps closer to the hamper. That would be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be really cool. Oh, yeah, so that's something I can do, and I can do that. So sometimes it'll be that simple, but other times it'll be a little bit more complicated. What is one thing I can do to improve our relationship? Relationship. And so, Instead, mean, maybe you come home from work on time, so I can you know know that when I prepare a meal that uh, you'll be there. You respect me in that way. You know, there's other things that you know might come up. Is what is one thing I can do to improve our relationship? Now, I guarantee you're going to get some good answers, and you're going to get some help from this. Um, and these questions will deepen your relationship. These questions will deepen your relationships with other people as well. Now, uh, I put some resources over in the bookstore that'll help you with this whole idea of marriage. One book I want to recommend is Tim Keller. Uh, and he wrote a book about the meaning of marriage. And the reason I'm pointing that one out right now is because singles right now maybe feel like I'm leaving you out. That book includes you, and a big portion of that book is how to be single in a culture where couples seem to rule, where everything seems to be about couples. He's got some good material in there that you might want to look at on the meaning of marriage by Timothy Keller, uh, as well as on the back of your notes, if you want to turn over to the back side, I put some keys there, some other resources there that you might want to look at uh, love and respect uh, helps in the whole issue of we talked about about those first two points and then how we love also another great book and there's all, how we love our children too can help you with some resources to, to grow in this area okay on the back side he wants to talk about the family environment and parents and children and so let's you know, cur- you know look at that just a little bit first is this kids honor your parents for kids honor your parents He says this, children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. And then he says this, children, obey your parents, honor your father and mother. Now, that, you know, when you're 25, he's not saying obey your parents, okay? You're, you know, he's saying honor your parents. You honor their wishes, but there's a point where you do have to break the ties and that you do have to step out and you are independent, and that you can, you know, you don't have to obey everything that they actually say. But when you're younger, you do. And you're still in their home. You have to obey the, the values that your parents live by when you're still living underneath their roof. Uh, but then when you move out, then, then you move into the place of honoring them. Uh, but, I, you know, with that whole thing about Ephesians 6, I actually dropped off. I'm so sorry about this, the rest of what I wanted to put on. So this is what Paul goes on to say. He says, honor your father and mother. And then he says this, if you honor your mother and father, things will go well with you and you will have long life on earth. Isn't that a great promise? If you honor your mother and father, things will go well with you, and you will have long life on earth. So he gives you two reasons to honor your parents, prosperity and longevity. Prosperity, things will go well with you, and you will have long life on earth. And because I saw the movie on Friday, Live long and prosper. That's what that means, okay? Paul, that's what he was trying to say. Live long and prosper, right there, and we get to see that. Now, maybe uh, the way that this works out, okay, uh, live long and prosper, is that uh, researchers have done some, uh, a lot of work on this whole area about what makes someone successful, and uh, did you know that 80% of your success is determined by how well you get along with other people? 80% 80% of your success, not what you know, but how you get along with, how well you get along with other people. They call it the, your EQ uh, in life. So here's the deal. If you learn to obey and honor your parents when you're in your home, then when you move outside of your home into other uh, environments, and you obey and honor your teachers and your coaches and your bosses, what happens is as I honor my teachers, coaches, and bosses, and I'm getting out into life and those kinds of things, then life goes better for me. And as life goes better for me, the less stress I have. So prosperity and longevity comes from learning to honor those in authority. Okay, that's kids. Now for parents, Paul says this. If you want to build grace into your home, you encourage your children. You encourage them. Paul says this, fathers do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. You might just underline that, or they will become discouraged. Now, that word aggravate can be translated many different ways, and some of you already know, and maybe you have a translation of the Bible that has it different. Exasperated is one, frustrated, irritated. Uh, It means to provoke into a state of resentment, to provoke or goad into a state of resentment. Now, once again, just give you some culture here uh what's going on paul's writing to this into this culture in which the fathers had absolute rule and authority over everyone in their household a father could actually even sell his children into slavery sell them into slavery and some of you with teenagers you're thinking hmm (laughs) Uh, not really you're probably not thinking that Uh, but paul says this he says Not uh, what I'm saying to you. I'm not even. I'm I'm going. I'm saying, don't even irritate them. I'm just not saying don't sell them into slavery. I'm saying don't even provoke them. So how does that apply? What I want to give you some now some ways that uh, just some typical ways that you can discourage your kids. So you know you want to do the opposite, but I just want to point out some ways that we can discourage our kids or to provoke them. Uh, First one is this: you discourage your kids when you label them. You discourage them when you label them. And I can't believe when I'm, you know, out in, you know, places where parents have stress and they've got little kids, some of the things I hear parents say to their kids. Stupid. You moron. And then they tack on some colorful language uh, that makes it even more demeaning in some way. You idiot. Those kinds of things. Folks, if you label your kids in that way, that's who they become. And you provoke them. You provoke them to be exasperated. Second, you discourage your kids when you, I love this phrase, prophesy doom over them. Prophesy doom over them. And so the way you prophesy doom is you say things like, this is just too hard for you. You can't do this. What have you done? You've prophesied doom right there. Your kid comes home and they're not not doing well in school your teachers just give you too much homework. It's just your teacher's fault. You can't do this. Or they say something, you know what, you're just not good at sports, or you're not just good at music, or you're just not good at, and they go on and say, you're prophesying doom over them. You prophesy doom over your children whenever you use these two words, never or always, never or always. When you say, you never, or you always, and you are going to say some negative statement, you're prophesying doom over them, because what you're saying is, you can't change. You can't change. Number three, you discourage your kids when you compare them to others. Compare them to others. You know, you say things like, you're just like your Uncle Joe, and he never did change. He always was a wreck. Things like that. You say things like, when you discourage them, when you compare why aren't you more like your brother? Why aren't you more like your sister? Why aren't you more like, and you just pick out, and you compare them in some way, in some area, and discourage them? Number four, you discourage your kids when you talk openly about their faults in front of them and others, in front of others. When you talk openly about their faults in front of others. I just think, as parents, we forget the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We forget the golden rule. And what we need to be thinking about here is, is that I would want, if the, if the roles were reversed and the situation was reversed, I would want my kids to treat me as they wanted to be treated. So I'm going to treat my kids as I know that they want to be treated, as I want to be treated. I'm going to treat them well. See, we're required to do that. To give to them in love. Okay, now, we got, we got this so far. I want to kind of land it, okay? Because uh, I've given you a lot of you know, things to think about. Some of you right now, some of you are feeling encouraged and some of you are feeling discouraged. Some of you are feeling hopeful and some of you are feeling regretful. I understand that. I understand those feelings. I have those same kinds of feelings and just a mix of all of them. I just want to leave you with this. Okay, Ron, then how do we do it? How do we do it? I want to give you the key. Here's the key. I love those in my family the way God loves me. I love those in my family the way God loves me. So instead of thinking today, oh, I just got all these things I've got to do today, I've got to try harder, and I'm going to make these changes, I'm just going to say, I don't think you're going to make permanent change in behavior until you make permanent change in how you view yourself and how you view God's love for you so that as you are in bringing in his love into yourself then what is going to come out is his love so you have to replace what's inside with his love so that what comes out of you is his love for other people and i think that's what paul means in colossians 3 the verses right before we read today he says this since god chose you to be the holy people he loves you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy kindness humility gentleness and patience Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. The secret to building a home full of grace is to experience grace yourself. The secret to building a home of love is to experience God's love yourself. One of the best gifts you can give to your family is to find a way that you can come underneath the funnel of God's grace and love yourself, so that when you now come into your family environment, you become a dispenser of fertilizer, a dispenser of God's grace and love to your family, so that they become the beautiful home. It becomes the beautiful home that you desire and they deserve. Paul gave a clear word to us in ephesians 5 he says this submit to one another out of reverence for christ out of reverence for him let's pray together well father as i prepared this uh, this was hard for me it was a wake-up call just a reminder and and i pray for everyone in the room that this, this message today, I, I believe, is related to every one of us in some way. So, Father, we just come before you now, and we just want to sit here and, and receive your grace. It's not about us feeling bad right now. Some of us have never received your grace. We've never said yes to Jesus. And so, if that's the starting point, I want to give you the opportunity to start today. If you've never said yes to Jesus, here's what you do. You say, Jesus, I want to say yes to you today. I believe that you came to earth, and you lived, and you died on a cross for me. Thank you so much for that. I have sinned, and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me of my sin." and I'll live the rest of my days for you. For those of us who've said yes to Jesus, today is about you receiving grace, about you receiving what he wants to give you so that then you can dispense it into your world. And I pray today for everyone in the room, Father, that this has been encouraging, that this has been hopeful, that this message has been tangible, and that they will be able to today today, look for ways to dispense your love and grace into their family, into the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.